A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So tauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and today... We'll start off uh, with uh, something we haven't done in a while. Read a few letters from the Greater Jewish History Soundbites listeners community. Some great letters are always coming in, and I tend to forget to read them from time to time, so it's good to get back into that. I got recently a nice one from, um, I posted a speech I gave in the Rydnicker Stiebel on the West Side when I was in the United States, about Hasidus being transplanted to America, so he was responding to that episode. He writes as follows. About the Satmarov, when he first came to America, a relative of mine who had escaped Germany after Kristallnacht and lived in Williamsburg said he remembered that when the Satmarov first came, he was well known from Europe but had nothing. The first Simchas another local Rebbe, lent him his shtibel. He was curious to see this famous Rebbe. He said he barely had a minion. Unfathomable. The Satmarov almost didn't have a minion on Simchas Torah. Another relative of mine grew up on the Lower East Side and was walking to work one day when they called him in for a minion in the Bayaner Shtibel with the Bayaner Rebbe. Although he was in a rush, they said he was the tenth man, so he went in. After looking around and not noticing the Rebbe, he inquired to his whereabouts. He was told the Rebbe Davins in another room, like most Rishon Rebbe's, he told them to tell the Rebbe to come out and make the minion and left. So that was um, great stories. This listener always sends in fantastic stories. I don't know if, where he gets them all from, but it's uh, so it's nice. And we had a nice response to the Siem Hashas episode. I mentioned that that um, that um, Sher pushed for the uh, move to the Siem Hashas to Madison Square Garden. So I got a letter from a listener as follows, um, by the ninth Simashas, 1990. So it says, he writes as follows, You said that Ramesh Sher was the one who pushed for using the Madison Square Garden. Actually, what happened was that a Balabas by the name of Ralph Reeder pushed Ramesh Sher to do it. He not only pushed him to do it, but he also put down $25,000, which, which in 1990 was quite a sum of money, as a deposit to be able to get the place. Not only did he 
So, so what, it, what would come out is that not only did he do it, not only did he push for it, but he actually put his money where his mouth was, and that's how we had the Siyum Hashas in Madison Square Garden. That's the letter, so it turns out that Ramayshishar was not the only one who made it happen, but um, this fellow named Mr. Ralph Reeder, a very prominent individual and still involved with the Siyum Hashas, is also, um, or primarily the one who gets the credit, I'm sure, um, many people get the credit, and of course, um, Ralph Reeder, Ramay Shisher, and Chatzkel Besser, there are other, others who are involved in the great and noble achievement of uh, bringing the Siyamashas to bigger and better places. Um, I got another one. This, this I got actually a lot of responses for, for the recent episode I said about the Langer case, the case of the Langer children and Rav Shleim Goren's Psak. That was just recently... And I got a lot of responses for that. It obviously touched a raw nerve with some people. So I just want to read one of the letters I received to be able to clarify something that perhaps was misunderstood. So here it goes. I just wanted to comment on the irony that you, ironies in quotation marks, that you point out on this podcast regarding the difference of the way the current Haredim deal with the question of Geiris versus the Langer case. The difference is obvious. In the Langer case, the question was after the fact. So when you're dealing with a question of a possible mamzer, of course you take the stringent side that it's very possible that he was indeed a ger. But when you are dealing with becoming a ger lechatchila, obviously you try to be mekayim the shitas harambam, that the basic element of geris is the will to be a Jew without any ulterior motives such as marriage, etc., so I don't think there's any irony here as one thing has nothing to do with another. So that's the letter. And uh, so I just want to clarify what I meant. And obviously this uh, listener is correct. And what I meant to say, perhaps it wasn't clear, was that I'm not pointing out an irony in the halachic sense. In the halachic sense, there's always a reason to be machmer. In fact, I don't think you need a justification to be machmer. It's... It's just the accepted way to very often, by many psak, to be machmer, especially in such important decisions such as geiris or mamzerus or marriage and stuff. And I think that I even mentioned that I'm not coming to take any stance on the halachic issue, primarily because I don't know any halacha. I'm only trying to relate a little bit of history and tell the story in its historical context. And that's what I meant by irony, is that from a historical point of view, there's an irony here that different positions were taken. Obviously, in a literal halachic view, there is no irony, there's no contradiction, and I definitely didn't mean that to be any disrespectful, uh, obviously, to anyone involved. So I hope uh, that, uh, that that's uh, cleared up. Um, halacha is fine, and I was just talking about uh, as far as history. So let's move on to what I wanted to talk about today, and um, an upcoming yard site this week of Rav Dessler, Chavdalat Teves, and everyone knows Chavdalat Teves is the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, the Balatanya, uh, so everyone might be expecting so Jewish history soundbites to talk about that, well, we'll get around to that, you know, we talked about Alter Rebbe on other occasions also, it happens to also be the yard site of Rav Dessler. Now, there is a connection, obviously. Mir Rav Dessler was very influenced by um, the Sefer Hatanya, by Hasidus in general, when he was in Hummel uh, during one point of his life as a refugee. 
He learned with a prominent Chabad Chassid, one of the most famous Chabad Chassidim at the time, Reb Itchid their Masmid, as he was known. And they learned Tanya together. It heavily influenced his thought, his writing, even his Shmuzin and Panavij, allegedly. And I heard this from a pretty reliable source that he would uh, even quote Chassidus in his Shmuzin and Panavij. Uh, but the Panavij Rav just asked him not to quote it by name. So he never actually quoted the Baal Shem Tov or the Alter Rebbe or anyone else but he would uh, incorporate their ideas into his Shemuzin and Panavish. So he definitely had a influence on the Alter Rebbe, so it is uh, interesting that he died on the same yard site as the Alter Rebbe. But his primary influence and his thought and his yichas and his family and who he was was not in Chassidus or in Chabad, but he was a from the aristocracy of, of Lithuania, of Lita. He was a descendant of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and he married into the family of the altar of Kelm. His father was one of the primary primary Talmidim of Kelm. His, his father, Abruvin Dave Dessler, even ran the Talmud Torah in Kelm for a period of time after World War I. And also, um, his father, Abruvin Dave Dessler, had married the daughter of Rebellion Lazar Grudnitsky, who Lazar Dessler was named after, who was a dying on the Vilna Bezdin and a son-in-law of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. So he married a direct, uh, see he was, Rabbi Dessler was a direct descendant of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement, and his whole life was absorbing the atmosphere of Kelm, which uh, he eventually married into when he married the daughter of Rabbi Nachum Velvel uh, Ziv, the son of the altar of Kelm. And in fact, the Desslers today are the only surviving descendants of the altar of Kelm, most of them were wiped out in the war. And the Desslers are proudly the uh, descend, only living descendants of the uh, altar of Kelm. So using Griv Dessler as a springboard, perhaps it's, it's uh, time, high time, that we examine a little bit the world of Kelm, which is, plays such a role in the Musser movement and in the Lithuanian yeshiva world, but there's a certain mystique uh, about it. It was such a unique place, such a different kind of place, um, that only existed at that time. We'll tell a few stories uh, about Kelm in honor of Rav Dessler. I remember when I was a Bachar in the Mir Yeshiva, and it was during the Aseris Yimei um and the Yeshiva was reading the Perak Pei, Kapitel Pei in Tehillim, Pasuk by Pasuk, every day of the Aseris Yimei which they do till today. I never thought much about it and why they do it during Aseris Yimei why Tafka Pei, what's so special about the 80th parak of Tehillim, that they say it, Pasuk by Pasuk, no one ever heard of it, I had never heard of the that particular chapter of Tehillim before uh, the Mir, so I always wondered about it, but I never put too much thought to it, and one day during Aseris Yimei I I was leaving Davening, and they were saying Kapitel Pei, and I heard one of the elderly Rabbeim, in the yeshiva comment, I don't know if it was to me or to someone nearby, he said, Oh, Epis Dog Ibliben von Kelm. Something here is remained from Kelm. And I said to him, I stopped all of a sudden, you know, Kelm, my, my ears perked up. I said to him, What do you mean? He said proudly, This was the custom in Kelm that during the Aseris Yimei they read the 80th parak of Tehillim, Kapitel Pei, Pasik by Pasik. And later on, Rabbi Rucham Lavavitz, who was a product of Kelm, brought it to the mirror. And here, we still have it. So you see how even something so what would seemingly be trivial, a minor custom from Kelm, is a source of continuing tradition and pride 
that people keep, there's this connection to Kelm that, that people still uh, try to maintain, at least uh, uh, and at least to tell some stories about it. That's good enough. You know, the author of Kelm, Reb Chazisel Ziv, was one of the three primary Talmidim of Rabbi Yisrael Salant, or the other two were Itzel Petterberger, or Itzel Blazer, and Rabbi Amsterdam, both fascinating individuals also, and perhaps one day we can speak about them. The altar of Kelm was, um, was one of the main ones, and when he gave his hespid on Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, when Rabbi Yisrael Salanter passed away, he said it was a one-line uh, eulogy, and he said, Mir nach gezen a mensch. We saw a mensch, a human being, a, the personification of what a human being should be. And that essentially what became the Kelm philosophy. They tried to develop people. Kelm made people. They, um, they built people. They had their a whole educational philosophy of, of maintaining order, seder, clarity in life, in the inner life and outer life. And um, in fact, when, we, when I bring my tours to Europe or to, primarily to Lithuania, that's where Kelm is, it's one of the highlights of the trip. Kelm is a special place, and we get to, you know, take in the atmosphere of the small town and talk about the place. And, tell, and I, I very often just enjoy telling stories, not so much about the history and the background and the dates, but stories about it. Very unique, and it's a powerful place and so much to learn from. And I think that we won't even get to all the stories, what I want to say, in one episode, and we might even have to do a second or third one because Kelm is such an amazing place. By the way, on my Israel tours, um, I sometimes do the Bnei Brak Jewish Cemetery, which is a fascinating place, and Rav Dessler is buried there, and that's another opportunity to speak about Rav Dessler and Kelm, and even his Matseva, a very simple Matseva, and it just says, his gravestone just says his name and the date that he died, because the custom in Kelm originally was, it's an opportunity again to speak about the strange and unique customs of Kelm, was to not put anything by a person's graveside, just to stick in a marker that someone's buried here, but not to write anything on the Matseva. And uh, originally that's what Rav Dessler's cover was. His children wanted to keep the customs of Kelm, even though he was buried in B'nai Brak. But a few years after he died, in 1953, Rebelli Lapian, who was one of the last surviving students of the Kelm Yeshiva who lived in Israel, he said to Rav Dessler's kids, you should make a real Matseva and at least write his name there, because people today don't understand the holy customs of Kelm, when they will come to uh, think it's strange or even degrade your father because there's no matzeva there. So, and there, you know, it's another story and another angle to speak about Kelm over there. So, it was, Kelm was a small place. It never was more than 30 people. And, uh, and it developed character in a very intense way. It was a factory for making very quality, it was small, but each person was an individual there. You know, it, it was a lot of hard work. People stayed there a long time. It was older, different periods of time in Kelm history, but for a period of time, it was for older uh, people, very often married, people who uh, left their wives behind. They would be called the Prushim. Rabbi Rucham Levavitz himself was like that. His wife stayed in Uzvant and ran a restaurant, and he had made an agreement with her when they were engaged, or before they got even got engaged, that he would be able to do so. He'd be able to go to Kelm for eight years after he got married, 
for an intense uh, self-working uh, and building himself up as an individual. People came there, they were already accomplished. You didn't go there to study Gemara. I mean, you went and studied Gemara, but you didn't go there to learn how to study Gemara. There wasn't any regular Gemara here. That's not what it was about. It wasn't a regular yeshiva in any uh, normal definition of the term. There were no, wasn't a regular place. It was a very, it was a very um, um, elitist, uh, small, like I said, about 30 people that was, they, they came for a specific thing to take on the Kelm way and to do the Kelm Aveda. And interesting, one of the uh, elderly um, um, people I once spoke to who knew students of Kelm and I wanted to learn more about it, he told me, he told me very, uh, very um, accurate portrayal of the place. He said, You can't imitate or mimic the ways of Kelm by just doing the customs of Kelm or by reading up on it and trying to, to mimic the way they behaved or the things that they did. That's not going to make you into a Kelm. You can become a Kelmer by doing the Avaida, by working hard, by trying to incorporate their ideals, that's a way to uh, become Kelm, but not just by mimicking. Mimicking is not going to make you into a Kelm. Uh, the, the, the altar of Kelm actually had a period of time where it was for younger children. In Reuben, it wasn't even in Kelm then. It was in Reuben, it was for rich kids, rich, rich kids, people, kids from rich homes, for younger ones. And in fact, in the Reuben Yeshiva, there were secular studies. And the altar of Kelm received permission from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter to have secular studies in his yeshiva. Kelm, and, and it was a unique place in many respects. Secular studies is just one of them. Um, but he also was very pro-working. He didn't want anyone to make a living off of Torah. They should all work for a living. The altar of Kelm himself was a bookbinder. His son, Rabbi Nachum Velvel, who was Rabbi Dessler's father-in-law, was a wealthy businessman. I'm not mistaken, he dealt in lumber, but it could be I'm wrong. But he dealt in one of the common businessmen, businesses of Eastern Europe. In fact, there was a, a, an amazing story that I always like telling over in Kelm, even though I haven't been able to verify the entire context of the story. So I'm still working on that. But one of the times that Ermachim Velvel Ziv, who was in business at the time, he's also one of the only people who, who after his father died, or after his really his brother-in-law, Tzvi Hirschbreide, died a few years after his father, so Rav Nachum Velvel became the leader of the Kelm Yeshiva. It wasn't even called a Yeshiva, by the way. It was called the Talmud Torah of Kelm. That's the name that they had for it. It was called the Talmud Torah. So he took over as the head, as the Rosh Yeshiva, I guess we would call it. Um, so he, he kind of retired from his business ventures and became full-time in the Yeshiva. So he was a businessman, but he was such a Balmusser, he was such a, a great person that he simply took over the role as the head of the Talmud Torah in Kelm very smoothly and easily when the time when the time came. Not for very long. He died quite young. But, um, but while he was a businessman, he was traveling, and he had been in transit for a while. You know, they didn't have social media or instant technology in those days. He wasn't updated. But when he got off the train, there had been some, Again, I don't know the whole context. I have to figure out which country it was and what year it was and what the economic situation or the revolutionary situation or the political situation in this country was to understand all the details of this story. But evidently, the currency had been devalued, which happened from time to time, especially during revolutionary periods. And the in, you know he had been de- doing these dealings in cash. I guess he was a good Jewish businessman. 
and he had a suitcase of cash with him, and he had planned on on which was common, by the way. That's that's not a uh, that's not a curiosity of the story at all. It was common in those days, and he had planned on paying in this cash, and the currency had been uh, devalued. So he was uh, he wasn't hadn't been updated about it. So when he came to pay for the transaction. The the guy who he was paying said, you know, the currency's been devalued. You think you came with all this money and you came with nothing? You know, you gotta you gotta you gotta fix up, uh, get 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 updated on the news, and uh, you gotta work and get get better currency. So he wrote a letter to his father after this whole story, and he said that he was shocked. You know, he thought he came with all his money prepared, and now he has to hustle around and try to work out his his money. And but then after a few seconds, he got out of the shock. He got out of his what he wrote there was his ziazua, his his uh, you know he was so disturbed, he was thrown off balance from it. After a few seconds, he tried to take out a muster idea, a muster lesson for life from this story. He said, "You know, we think we do so many mitzvahs and we're such good guys, and we come up to heaven, and Hashem says to us, you think these are mitzvahs? This wasn't done correctly. This was done with an ulterior motive. This was done for something else. And we have a lot to work on to make our mitzvahs look better. So our currency is also devalued. So his father wrote back, you know, Rebbe Vav was all proud of himself. He had taken out a Musar idea from this whole uh, calamity that he had experienced. And his father, the altar of Kelm, wrote back from the fact that you were shocked and disturbed in the beginning for a few seconds, I see that you haven't really made it so many inroads in Musser growth yet. And that was the high standards and the demands of Kalm Yeshiva at that time. Um, so the, you know, um, the altar of Kelm's daughter actually gave Vadim and the Yeshiva, Rebetzin Necham Alibu, who was killed by the Nazis at a very old age, but for a period of time, she was also a great Baal Musser. She was the altar's daughter. She also gave uh, Musser talks, in, not to the whole yeshiva, but small groups of vadim, they were called at that time, um, in the yeshiva also. So that's another uniqueness of Kelm. Kelm also had a way of davening. And part of their way of davening was to teach you how to daven properly. They would have a 50-minute psukah de zimra, which, wow, that's like, can drive anyone crazy. So I'm at the weekday, weekday psukah de zimra. 50 minutes long. And that's very long. But on Shabbos, which is a much longer Pesukah de Zimra, they also took 50 minutes. Why? Because in Kelm, they said there are times that you have to train yourself how to daven quickly. So you have to sometimes know how to daven quicker. It's important to know that skill as well. Um, that was a, a idea in Kelm. Um, the altar of Kelm emphasized order, orderliness in life, to dress properly, to dress nicely, because if your outer world is in order, then your inner world and your mind, your emotions will be controlled, Where ultimate self-control. That was what Kelm was all about and making your mind an orderly place to be able to grow properly, to be able to put your priorities straight, to be able to set your goals in life. That was the whole goal of Kelm. And one time the altar of Kelm gave a schmooze in the yeshiva because he noticed that someone's shoes under the bed in their lodgings was out was messy. It wasn't two shoes sitting under the bed in an orderly fashion. It was, it was looked like it had been just thrown there. And that means that the person wasn't misudar. He wasn't in order. He wasn't an orderly person. He wasn't clean. He wasn't, he wasn't in his, I mean, his life was a mess also. So he gave a two-hour schmooze in the yeshiva about the shoes. And the way the altar of Kelm gave schmoozing in the yeshiva was like a, in a, somewhat of a sing-song 
tune similar to way some people speak at Leviah's. They speak at, you know, when they're eulogizing someone in a very haunting or sad type of a sing-song way, manner of speech, which was common for a Magid to speak that way at the time in Eastern Europe. It wasn't so uncommon. And someone from the outside who wasn't part of the Talmud Torah of Kelm heard the altar speaking. He came into the Talmud Torah and he heard the altar speaking. And after a few minutes, he realized the altar was talking about a pair of shoes. And he went to the local shul and he, you know, he made a little leitzanas out of it. He made a joke out of the altar. He said, the altar of Kelm in the Talmud Torah there, he's saying a hesped on a pair of shoes. So, and it got back to the altar. So the altar from then on would not allow outsiders to come in. Kelm is for unique and special people. Not everyone can understand the lofty ways of Kelm. And if an outsider would come in during a shmooze, the altar would simply stop and wait till he left. No more outsiders. Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz would very often speak about his years in Kelm and how he how the how Seder was the ultimate goal in Kelm. Seder in everything in life. To be organized, to be orderly, to have clarity in the inside and the outside. And Rabbi Rucham one time in a Chumashir that he gave to the students in Mir Yeshiva, he goes off on a tangent. It's amazing, amazing piece. And he says, he starts off by saying, Ani nischanachti bekelm. I got my education in Kelm. That's how I became a, who I am. And let me tell you all about Kelm. And he starts rattling off stories. It was like story time in the mirror, about like eight or nine stories about his years in Kelm. It's a fascinating piece. And one of the stories he says is how he says when we put on our hat in the in the morning, and I guess this is assuming that everyone in the mirror wore a hat, that uh, that we move it 30, 40 times during the day. We adjust it. We move it. We can't go two minutes without moving our hat somewhere on our heads. He said the altar of Kelm, when he would put on his hat in the morning, never touched it for the rest of the day. Why? Because when he put it on in the beginning of the day, he put it on its proper place. And that's where the hat is supposed to be. And that's where it remains until it needs to be taken off. And it was perfectly in place. It never moved. It never budged for the entire day. Rebel Apian, who was another product of Kelm, was once, he used to live in up north in Israel in a place called Kfar Hasidim. He was a mashgiach and a, and a yeshiva up there, but he would very often come down to Yerushalayim to give shmuzin in different places and venues in Yerushalayim. So one time he was waiting for a bus from Kfar Hasidim, and he was waiting for a long time, for about two hours, and it was hot and humid outside, and the bus wasn't coming. By the way, not much has changed in public transportation in Israel in the last 50 years, and people still wait a long time uh, for buses to arrive. And he heard a noise in the distance, and he looked up to see if that's the bus. And then he quickly looked back down again to whatever he had been looking at before. And he said to himself, and his attendant who was standing next to him heard him mutter to himself, in Kelm they would have rebuked you for looking up. Is the bus going to come any faster if you look for it, if you look up at it? There was no purpose in making that move. It was just instinct. That means you're disorganized. You're, you just do things on impulse. And that's not the way of Kelm to do things on impulse. Um, the, the, uh, they didn't have any titles in Kelm. Anyone who was called up to the Torah was called by their name. Now, after the Chafetz Chaim had passed away, Rabbi Chanan Wasserman, who always went to Radin for the Yom Emelirayim, for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that period of time of year, he would always leave his yeshiva and go to Radin to be by the Chafetz Chaim. But after the Chafetz Chaim passed away, 
Rebbe Hanan would go to Kelm for that time to have a spiritual uplift to recharge his batteries, and he would be in Kelm, and they would give him an aliyah. They would call him up, one of the greatest Rashi Yeshiva around. They would call him up, El Hanan Bunim Ben Naftali. They would not call him up with Rabbi, Harav, Reb, nothing, no titles, because titles is just flattery. It's not real, and that's not the way um, of Kelm to to be you know fussy over titles. That's uh, just a little bit, a few stories of Kelm. Like I said, we'll have to have a part two one day, but just to give a taste of what the aristocracy and the uniqueness and the perfection of human character that a place like the Talmud Torah of Kelm was, first by the altar of Kelm, Reb Simchazizelziv, later by his nephew and son-in-law, Reb Tzvi Hirsch Breide, and later by his son, Reb Nachum Velvelziv, like I said, who was the father-in-law of Rav Dessler, and then it had later periods of time also, um, which maybe we'll also speak about uh, at another future opportunity. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to all these great places of Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.